The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 69 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wondering if Matt Wagner's hard-boiled crime book would have sold as well if it had been called Sandman Dinner Theater? I'm Adam. <laughs> now, uh, Michael is off dealing with the real world, sadly not the one involving Judd Winnick. Uh, but luckily, I had two fantastic comic-loving geeks on speed dial to include in our conversation tonight. So first up, returning to the podcast is an old friend with whom we haven't talked comics for far too long, I feel. Uh, from the West Week Ever blog, and most likely to be found at the Angel Grove Youth Center Gym and Juice Bar, it's William Bruce West. Howdy. Oh, glad to have you back, but not alone, no, because even though there are no bad girls to speak of in this issue, he's still the resident bad boy for this conversation. From the MaskedLibrary.com blog and my co-host on Thrift Store Horde on the Retro Network, it's Kevin Decent. How you doing? I'm doing well. Excited to be here with both of you. Now, Adam, previously, you were all excited. You thought you had the first one-on-one -on -one discussion between I know. me and Will, not knowing that we had just recorded one for my short-lived trying to extend the house show podcast thing <laughs> that had going on. However, this is the first video chat between the two of us. There we go. Okay, so you hear that? That's for Patreon. Patreon is now getting the video chat versions of these. That's just an extra benefit. So if you want to spend that five bucks a month, you get it early and you get a video version and you get a scan of the issue. So many perks. But uh, yeah, it's also the first time you guys are together in 2023 recording, right? That is this true. This is the exclusive. All right. <laughs> <laughs> But no, but I, I'm excited to get into this with you and hear what you guys think. But especially back in the day, Wizard wanted to hear what their readers were thinking in their magic words column. So we're going to open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. there's kind of a theme going on they have a lot of practical questions about superhero attire like this one that is involving rogue's sense of fashion okay this is from chad william porter of weston ontario canada who says why does rogue wear a belt when she's not wearing any pants <laughs> this is the response from the one and only Jim McLaughlin. Before all you perverts start buying up back issues of X-Men, please be advised that while Rogue does not wear pants, she does wear some sort of superhero-y leotard thing. Marvel says that everyone's favorite Southern Belle just knows how to accessorize, and she wears the belt because it's darn stylish. <laughs> but I do love the image that they've chosen to represent her here. The belt is literally just hanging off her tiny, tiny waist. And she says, I'm naked. I'm not from the 70s. 
south. I can't do it. Pretty no. sure her no. Toy Biz figure had a very loose belt like that as well. It did. Yeah, this tiny, tiny piece of plastic, which of course you were going to lose. But it was nice that they included that detail like it was essential, right? Jim Lee created this belt. We must include it. <laughs> All right, Kevin, who's next up here? Well, I mean, Rogue has green in her costume, but she's not entirely green. So Sarah Emendolara go with that staten island new york has a similar question but not about rogue this one's about the incredible hulk so sarah asks dear wizard here's a question that's been bugging me for a while it's about the incredible hulk let's set this up first you've got bruce banner a slim puny bit of a man weighing in at a whopping quote 122 pounds soaking wet unquote that according to peter david's hulk novel what savage beast which you should read it's good sarah did some research here yeah he becomes the hulk a big beefed up green guy of about 1150 pounds when he does his pants rip but never fall off my question how does the same pair of pants fit the hulk and bruce banner i've asked some of my hulk reading friends but none could satisfy my curiosity can you help wizard responds quote his pants are made of an unstable molecule slash polyblend that resists most rips and tears. Unfortunately, they're not available at your local Jeansarama. <laughs> you guys been shopping at the Jeansarama? <laughs> it sounds like Mine a place... just closed. Yeah. <laughs> Mine got bought up by a hedge fund, much like Toys R Us and Borders, and they're just done now. <laughs> they sold off all their stock to big lots. They, they uh, wanted the real estate. That was it. <laughs> although I'll be honest, Jeansarama sounds like the place where you go to buy Madeline Pryors. You just you get Jean Grey clothes at Jeansarama. <laughs> Oh, but I, you got to imagine, okay, yeah, they're unstable molecules. That's the excuse for everything. But he loses the clothing so often in his battles. It gets tattered. It gets torn. So, yes, it fits during that transformation. But after the fact, he's got to call up Reed Richards again. Like, how, how is he getting them shipped out? You know, especially when he's like in his savage phase and he's just like roaming the country. Like, there's a lot of involved there. It, I mean, we could say that Hulk has Bruce Banner has placed like almost like a spy has like a little <laughs> apartment with all you know extra guns yeah. and stuff like that. But Bruce Banner has like little things hidden away of clothing throughout the country, maybe even throughout the world. He just knows where all the hollow trees in the world are and he just shoves in a pair of pants in there. Some purple pants. Purple just pants. Like, <laughs> uh, I'm in I'm in Colorado. How far do I have to jump to get to a pair of pants? <laughs> All right, well, take us to our last letter here. But it's not all fashion faux pas in this issue, as Kyle Magatelli from Sacramento, California, inquires about a theoretical brawl between the art team of the wildly popular Gen 13. Dear Jim, who would win in a fight between Alex Garner and J. Scott Campbell, the Gen 13 art team? And Jim says, well, I asked him. Alex said, I would. There's a reason we call him Muscles Campbell. It's because he's got none. <laughs> it's meant to be facetious. Plus, if weapons were involved, I could stab him with my ink pen's crow quill nib, which is much sharper than any pencil. However, Campbell said I'd win, of course. I'd just throw salt in his eyes and then kick him. Hey, it works in pro wrestling. <laughs> 
I gotta say, it sounds like in the world of artist prison, getting nibbed instead of getting shanked. Oh, I got nibbed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I love I love this idea because they, they've done this before with like Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti. You know, it's like pitting these nerd artists against each other. So I gotta pit our nerd guests against each other between Kevin and Will in a, in a battle. Uh, you know, behind a comic book store, who would win? Kevin, because he's going to try out every move he's wanted to do from wrestling his entire life. <laughs> you haven't picked up any tips for the Power Rangers, all the martial arts demonstrations, Will, over the years? I can only fight once the fight is escalated. I can't start <laughs> the fight because Zordon will take my morpher. So... <laughs> Oh, once I've gone big kaiju style and I'm destroying the city, then we'll, we'll come back and fight me. Exactly. Also, I I want to pick on where you went to college because one of my best friends went there as well. And I'm familiar with it. There probably wasn't a lot of fighting going on, but it's not like my college had a lot of fighting going on either. Is that where people learn to fight in college? Is that where all the, the rumbles are taking place? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where everyone is drinking and shouldn't be and oh. gets over who talked to the girl first and stuff like that. <laughs> Okay, so gentlemen, lots of good news there, but there's even more news coming around here as we get into our wizard news. So our top story this issue is a two-page report titled Reborn Again, which explores what may come next for Marvel now that the 12-month contract with Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld is ending. As Jim Lee explains, quote, my deal is through issue number 12 only. I've discussed continuing with Marvel, but they haven't committed to anything yet. As for Liefeld's desire to keep his Captain American Avengers books going, quote, Marvel called and asked about doing more books. I told Marvel that I have no interest in continuing Cap. I had a Cap story to tell and I told it. After number 12, I just assumed it was going to go back to Marvel anyway. I'm looking forward to closure on these. <laughs> Though Liefeld does claim that, quote, we're discussing the future of Bucky and doing something with her outside of Captain America. And and they're now discussing a family of new titles, maybe four new books with us. So he's like, yeah, I told them now. Nah. But then they want to do all this stuff with us. They came to us. So we're, we're considering it. You know, this is Rob. But this is not at all how Rob Liefeld has described the parting of ways with Marvel in recent years on his Observations podcast. It was not, a, oh, I'm done. I'll just close up shop here. It was, uh, we sent you a letter that said you did not meet the sales uh, expectations. You're out. And he was not happy with that. So, but I, he's controlled the narrative right that's what they say that's what you do in the media he's got it all he's very savvy so yeah not as in charge of the situation as he wants us to believe but will kevin i'm curious heroes reborn were you guys all in were you a wait and see would you catch up with it later what'd you think about the whole experiment i wasn't involved in it i had already done age of apocalypse with the x-men stuff and this is still pre-internet so we don't know what's gonna happen but like i would get all the like american entertainment that was like a mail order company i would get all the ads for the heroes reborn books and the art always looked good but People forget that these weren't popular characters at the time. That's why they were able to do that with them. So, and I was poor. I was like 14 or something. <laughs> so, like, I only had money for uncanny, adjectiveless X-Men and Gen 13. Anything else was just like, it was not on my radar necessarily. Interesting. Okay, yes. And you haven't bothered to, to try and check it out in recent years? 
No, because no one has ever really said anything great like, oh, you really missed out here. You know, so I've just never there. I have like a morbid curiosity about it, but not enough to really track them down. Okay. How about you, Kevin? No, because it was I love the Avengers. I was the Avengers kid at the comic store. Um, I didn't want X-Men. even. I was reading it because Age of Apocalypse is interesting, but I didn't care about X-Men. I didn't care about the popular titles, but I loved Avengers. I loved West Coast Avengers and all that. So I didn't see anything wrong with it to cancel it. Not that I was reading everything anyways, but I thought in my mind, why fix what isn't broken? The Jim Lee art in Fantastic Four is beautiful, but it's Jim Lee art. It's also him retelling the first couple years of Fantastic Four and not breaking any new ground. It's just, here's Jim Lee telling the Stan Lee and Jack Kirby stories. That's the only difference. Rob Liefeld, the infamous Captain America pose, like he craps out immediately. And I was, the bloom was already off the ropes with Rob Liefeld, which for those who've listened to Wizard podcasts over the years, you will know that <laughs> continues to this day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, well, we did cast the first stone. It wasn't us. <laughs> no, no. But it was just like, I don't care about Rob. I wasn't a big Iron Man fan. His Captain America was garbage. Fantastic Four was retelling. It wasn't my Avengers. And I'm like, I'm done. And the funny thing is with this thing, oh, it's 12 issues. Didn't they all go a 13th? There was kind yes. of like a, a wrap up of everything anyways, before jumping back into the regular continuity. Yeah. So but... the, the whole thing was very fluid, it seemed. And I, I hadn't heard that Rob didn't reach the sales. Oh, geez, imagine that. That was promised. He, he's a great first issue idea person and after that get someone else well the thing is yeah he refutes it everybody should definitely go check out the heroes reborn you know that's the only the only episodes you need to listen to of the observations podcast but but he does basically says like they sent me the figures and they were amazing figures so i don't understand what was wrong with the money that i generated for them they just didn't want to continue with me but they wanted to continue with jim and have him handle all the books in his studio instead so there was something else going on on there that we were not privy to they just didn't want to work with it but there is more to this story as to what is going to happen after that 13th issue as you mentioned there kevin so why don't you clarify for us here what's on the horizon all right so continuing with the heroes reborn story it has been reported that peter david will be writing an event for marvel in 1997 called heroes return where it is assumed that the lost heroes will return to the Marvel 616 universe, but no creative teams have been announced for the titles being left vacant by Lee and Liefeld. Marvel editor and past guest on the podcast, Jason Liebig, is quoted as saying, We're talking to a lot of people and figuring out the best thing to do with these books. At this point, it hasn't been decided who's doing what. But according to the late great George Perez, he was approached by Marvel editor Ralph Macchio about penciling Earth's Mightiest Heroes again. Quote, he basically told me, if we're doing Avengers, you'll be doing Avengers. A statement which is confirmed by Macho in this report, Mark Wade is pegged as a potential writer for the series, as well as returning to pick up where he left off on Captain America. But as Ray remarks, nothing is materialized yet. I'm interested. I hope something can be worked out. Which is not the story told by artist Ron Garney. Quote, it's 85 to 90% likely that I'll go back to Captain America with Mark writing it. Wizard was certainly counting on these numbers to pan out as they had been lamenting the loss of the Wade Garney Captain America for the entire run of Heroes Reborn. 
Yeah, it's fascinating to watch all the commentary, like all throughout the spider clone, just like dissing the spider clone, just like doing everything they can to say, Marvel, this is a bad idea. And then when it comes back, they're like, yeah, I guess Spider-Man's pretty good now. Like they, they have nothing to talk about. And the same with this. It's like, well, how did they cancel that Mark Wade, Rod Gardy, Captain America? And they just bring it up over and over again, rip on Liefeld. And then once it comes back, I'm sure it's going to be like, man, that's a good book. It's a good thing they brought him back. And you want the controversy if you want news. <laughs> Should be hoping for bad books to come out, Wizard. <laughs> that's a lot like the world right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's that's how the news cycle continues to flow. But, Will, there's even more on the horizon, a little bit more uh, peppered in as to who might be involved in the future Marvel titles. Oh, yeah. Seeing an opportunity, many other comics pros are submitting pitches in hopes of writing these returning Marvel titles. Carl Kiesel, former writer of Fantastic Four 2099, and who had just recently left Daredevil, says he put his hat in the ring to helm the main continuity Fantastic Four. Quote, I just wrote up a bunch of ideas about what I'd do if I had the FF to write. I hope something works out, but I'm not holding my breath. Kurt Busick is said to have sent an outline for Iron Man, but has some competition from former creative team Bob Layton and David Michelini, who also submitted a two-page proposal of their own. Warren Ellis, meanwhile, is rumored to be in the running to write Thor. And did you guys have any hope for Marvel Comics in the wake of Heroes Reborn? Did you just want things to get back to normal? Well, what's interesting is, you know, like you said, well, you're just reading X-Men and Gen 13. I'm reading Gen 13 and then starting to get into Madman. I'm going over to DC to read Resurrection Man. So like the Marvel titles in my experience at that time, just nothing was hooking me. Nothing said, come back and take a look, you know? So definitely I, I had no interest in Heroes Reborn. And then I was just like, well, I'm just off the Marvel train now. Like 2099 was gone. So I was just like, there's, there's nothing new and exciting happening. You just want to get back to the status quo. And I was like, Ah, status quo never interested me heroes return the avengers return was amazing because they did get george press to do it first issue he draws every single person who's ever been an avenger they're back captain america calls a meeting hey we gotta figure out a new avengers team here's everyone that's ever been an avenger we know some of you it's not gonna work out some of you you know we want to discuss being on the team have a team of reserves once an avenger always an avenger and then this crazy thing happens. I believe it involves Morgan Le Fay, and she transports them all back to medieval times. And George Perez takes every Avenger ever that he just got done drawing in the first issue and redraws their costumes brand new to fit in with medieval times. Wow. With all of them. It's beautiful <laughs> and stunning. And he was the only person that could have done it by far. And so that was like, and me being a huge Avengers fan already, I'm like, that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. Not whatever he list, listed 12 slash 13 issues previously. This is what I wanted. That's wow. That, that I did have no idea. One. Yeah, it was so good. It, it, it was, I mean, I knew Crisis and everything, but that was like my George Perez story to see all the Avengers done that way. Yeah, we're, we're going to be covering that because Wizard did release a Heroes Return special. It actually got a couple of the issues uh, of Heroes Return, like the big book ending ones, from uh, a former Toy Fair editor. So Justin Acklin, he was selling off a lot of his comics. And so I got some of those. So now I could finally catch up and find out what it was all about. So I'm looking forward to that. How about for you, Will, just in general, like, was there anything you were hoping Marvel would accomplish that would get your attention outside of X-Men? Was there a book like that you used to read and you're like, well, if they did something with this character. 
Not really. I orbited Amazing Spider-Man, so like I have the issue that coincides with Heroes Reborn, where he's kind of like mourning the heroes, and he's like, "I'll make sure that that I I fill your your spot, basically. Like yeah. you will not have died in vain, that kind of <laughs> thing." And then I have that same Avengers number one that Kevin was talking about because it's like nowadays it's a joke, but back then you could have been like. How often are you going to get an Avengers number one? Of course <laughs> I have to have this. You know? So, like, I did buy that, but I didn't stick with the book. Like, it it wasn't for me. Because I don't, I don't like fantasy knights castle stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, that does seem like a huge shift to take in your first story arc. It's like, okay, we're back, but now we're back in time. <laughs> yeah. So, like, okay. Yeah. Uh, now, moving on here, though, uh, getting into more our comfort zone here, all of us. Uh, speaking of Warren Ellis, they mentioned that he was going to be taking over Thor. He and Steve Dillon, the artist from Preacher, at this time had just written the first Gen 13 annual, which finds the team's mentor, John Lynch, quote, taking the Gen 13 kids on a spring break to London. A terrible thing to do, since London is much colder than California, jokes the writer. And the story centers around the strange goings-on in the Wolf's Head pub, which, quote, has become a hole for all the weirdest bastards in Britain, says Ellis. It's definitely a, a change of scenery where we're used to the Southern California adventures of Gen 13. But the art by Steve Dillon is pretty great in this issue. Do you guys have this? Have you read this before? Oh yeah, I own it. Like I, I remember when it came out and because I bought anything with Gen 13 on it. Just anything and everything. Like, oh, this Stormwatch has a preview for Gen 13 25? Sign me up. You know? So like, I definitely remember Remember that issue and it was the first time i felt like you could kind of take gen 13 seriously because like we've talked about the title before and like even though those first 25 issues are like the gen 13 everyone thinks of and loves there's not a lot of substance to it but this like this kind of felt like oh you could do something with these characters yeah like that one in the ordinary heroes by a adam hughes like i felt yes. like those were the two like pillars if you're not gonna have the original creation creative team these people knew how to handle it well so yeah you're, you're definitely right on that see i didn't even know this annual existed i mean I, clearly at some point i did know but i'd long forgotten until reading this issue for the podcast and will and i and i, I apologize i can't remember if we did this like on a show you know if there's a recording of it or if it was just us on our own but have discussed why gen 13 has never come back hmm. and I believe, and Will, by all means, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe my point was, oh, someone should bring it back. They were classic characters. Everyone loved them. And you're like, it's a product of the 90s. Like, there's nothing to really bring to 2022, 2023 for these characters. Maybe if you use the names or something, but you'd have to completely revamp them so they don't look like a joke at this point. It captured the zeitgeist of the time. Like, it really was, like, it, it was lightning in a bottle. Now, I have read something, this is getting a little off, but, like, recently, that is Gen 13 in a modern-day setting, even though it's not called that, and it's the Earth-1 Teen Titan. Oh, like, okay. Really? Like, if you really? pick that up, that to me is the closest gen 13 in a modern setting i've ever read even though it's actually the teen titans like if you get a chance pick that up because it's got the same underlaying like vibe to it 
I like that. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. And the other thing I was just thinking, again, I don't want to get too far off topic here, but you know, with the recent announcement we just had this week from James Gunn on the DC film side of things, and they're releasing their slate and explaining what they're developing, the authority is in there. A Wildstorm property is now being developed, which gives me hope that down the line, what if they just did, you know, we're getting out of the Stranger Things 80s throwback. Now on Netflix, we have that 90s show. What if they did a 90s throwback movie or series of Gen 13 and you just get the nostalgia hit and you get to play it up you know in its environment where they belong those characters I, I'm just putting it out there James just letting you know <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad idea uh, but there were uh, more shakeups and kind of the the younger side of superheroics here so Kevin take us into our next news item Artist Gary Frank is reported to be leaving Supergirl after issue nine. Says Frank, I wasn't interested in drawing the book anymore. There were no personality clashes or anything like that. Essentially, the book just lost its shine for me. Though Supergirl writer Peter David admits to feeling somewhat at fault for Frank's departure. Quote, one of the reasons Gary cited for leaving the book is that I wasn't turning out the plots fast enough. I understand the situation. I've been in the place of waiting around for art to come in so I could script it. The ironic thing is I'm actually caught up now. There will be fill-in issues by Leonard Kirk and Greg Land, but the search for permanent artists continues. So here on the podcast, Michael and I have had a conversation about this Supergirl, like in the, these first, you know, eight or nine issues that we read and how it's it's very dark, it's very occult, and like you got demons and all this stuff running around. So what did you guys think about this Peter David run? Did you ever give it a look? Couldn't deal with the art. Like uh, there really? are two artists that stick out in my mind. Frank quietly, he draws everybody like they've been in the bathtub too long. And <laughs> and Gary Frank, so many teeth. <laughs> it's like he went to like dental school. His characters have so many like pronounced teeth. Like he's a great artist, but my eyes are always drawn to the mouths and it takes me out of it. Look at any Gary Frank work and you'd be like, huh. There are a lot of teeth in that character's head. <laughs> well, that's what you do when you go to a convention. You get him to do a sketch in your book. You just do it of Supergirl at the dentist, you know, in the chair. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But that Peter David run, I mean, I've wanted to revisit it because isn't that the thing that eventually... I don't want to get off topic. I've wanted to revisit <laughs> it for reasons. Okay, <laughs> reasons. It's you want to find out... Find Will online and you can ask him what those reasons are. <laughs> it, it's the Alien Goo Angel run, right? Okay, I the reason I wanted to revisit it is because <laughs> he never gets to finish what he initially set out to do. So oh. that character becomes Fallen Angel, which mm -hmm. starts at DC but goes to IDW. And I've read Fallen Angel, oh. and they're the same character, but he was never legally allowed to say that. So now I want to see like the origins of it. Yeah, well, because because I have I recently just picked up a bunch of issues of Resurrection Man and. There's this two-issue story where Supergirl is in there, you know, with Resurrection Man, but she's got these angel wings. And now you're filling in that gap for me. I'm like, yeah, what was that about? So, yeah. cool. All right. Now I know a little bit more. I read it years and years ago. I couldn't find it here, so I think it's in a pile of stuff I left at my mom's forever ago. Um, but I had this graphic novel, and I enjoyed it. But I think, and I mean, she's such a complicated character anyways, but I think my issue was call it something else like I, I just didn't feel like this is supergirl it's good i enjoyed it 
but I just felt like call it something else. So I'm not confusing it or thinking it's supposed to be something it is never supposed to be here anyways, but I'm bringing baggage and expectations in and that's unfair to the creative team. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, we have another big piece of news here. Will, uh, why don't you take us into this one? Signaling the end of an era, it's reported that Marvel has closed their exclusive in-house distribution wing, Heroes World, and has now returned to Diamond Comic Distributors, who were the last company standing in the distributor wars, which began a few years prior. What did this mean for the industry? Basically, everything just went back to that status quo of the early 90s. So, Will, I I know that you're someone who has worked in the world of comics and catalogs and the distribution side of things. So, it's Diamond, I mean, are they good? Do we like them? Are they just the monopoly? Like, what is the general opinion behind the scenes? (laughs) I am probably the biggest Diamond apologist you'll ever meet. And... (laughs) Like, a lot of that has to do with the fact that, yes, I did work there. I was a purchasing brand manager for about two years in the comics team. So I helped make the previews catalog, and I handled any publisher that fell between the letters E and R, which was a lot. But think of it this way. There were, like, two people that just handled the A's because it's like a phone book. Everybody wants an A, so they get to, like, the front of the catalog. But, like, I handled, like, IDD. W and Oni and things like that. So my argument is that I think a lot of the anti-diamond sentiment comes from retailers because comics are the only industry where you are trained to hate the distributor. <laughs> like, I worked at Toys R Us for 10 years. The distributor for Toys R Us was called Lash Tamaron. If Lash Tamaron messed up, there was no customer in the store saying, man, stupid Lash Tamaron didn't bring any Tamagotchis. <laughs> but like, but like, and no Nobody in Toys R Us would blame Lash Tamron. But in comics, you go and say like, hey, did you get nightclub number two? Now, Diamond shorted us. <laughs> you know, it's like if retailers didn't train the customer to hate Diamond, there wouldn't be as much anti-Diamond sentiment. And they're doing the best they can. My argument is that Diamond would gladly step aside for true competition. The fact being, they're so ensconced in the industry is kind of like a load-bearing wall. You can't remove them at this point because too many things would fall and collapse. But they don't want to be they're not high on the hog thinking like haha we're this monopoly this is just how things shook out because a lot of people played their hand and their hand lost you know like diamond scrambled to survive during the distribution wars and during the heroes world stuff and they were the last man standing not because of any business savvy it just was the luck of the draw and that's where we are now all these years later yeah that's fascinating yeah i knew you'd be able to give us an opinion that nobody else could really so that that's interesting that diamond often the scapegoat of the retailers to get their customers off their back it's not our fault it was diamond 
And now, speaking of which, though, uh, somebody that that would have been covered uh, elsewhere uh, in your neck of the woods when you were working there, but Lightning Comics, purveyors of Bad Girl Helena, which I believe was their biggest selling title, are still trying to play the gimmick game with their comics. They make the announcement in this issue that the death of Bloodfire, number one, will be shrink-wrapped with a condom, and part of the proceeds will be going to various AIDS research organizations, which is great. But this is not the first time that this gimmick was attempted, guys. Way back in 1993 in Wizard 22, it was reported that Omega-7 comic editor-in-chief Alonzo L. Washington was going to package his original man comic books with customized condoms to promote AIDS awareness and safe sex. So, I mean, it's just... Going back to the strangest gimmick well of all is uh, Lightning Comics. They, of course, were the first ones to do a nude variant cover. That was their claim to fame. The saddest part, of course, is that the guys who were buying the comics, especially the lower tier indie book buyers, uh, people interested in Alina, were not even close to having to concern themselves with the concept of sex, let alone safe sex. Am I right? Huh? Huh? <laughs> you're, you're not wrong. Imagine no. actually using it. I mean, it was customized. And like, I just can't imagine that conversation. Like, what is that on you right now? Oh, you like it? It's from Lightning Comics. <laughs> like... We'll read it after. We'll cuddle. We'll read Helena number four. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering how it was packaged with the comic. Was it stapled in there? Making it useless. Well, they said shrink wrapped, so I think they they thought ahead enough. Yeah, so it's doubly shrink wrapped in a way here. (laughs) Um, Also, depending on where it's shrink wrapped on the comic. I'm kind of picturing it in a long box like the Eclipso Diamond, where it ruins everything <laughs> else around it. Like I was thinking that same thing. Oh, 100%, man. But uh, speaking of that topic, you know, Billy Madison, he had a favorite number. We're going to get into our table of comments and talk about issue 69. Nice. (laughs) Uh, Issue 69 of Wizard featured a May 1997 cover date and was a two-cover affair, as was customary at the time. Now, first up was a very fun Dark Claw Adventures cover by Ty Templeton that was drawn in the Bruce Timm style with Dark Claw standing above the the dead bodies, apparently, of all his uh, rogues gallery. So that's kind of interesting. But yeah, obviously celebrating the return of Amalgam, which we'll be talking about shortly. But the second cover was an Andy Kubert cover where Wolverine is stealing the spotlight from Kazar. It just looks like he photobombed him here. Once again, Kazar, if I never hear that name again, it'll be too soon. We're going <laughs> to so much Kazar in the last few months. But let's read here what Wizard has to say in their big book of covers. Originally slated as a solo Kazar cover based off the character's successful series at the time, it was decided to play it safe and add a proven element to the mix. Wolverine. Wolverine. By the time we received Kubert's sketch, we opted to transform it into a dominant Wolverine cover, with Kazar making little more than a cameo appearance. Uh, so sad, and no Zabu either. So <laughs> I love that. They're just like, Kazar's not going to sell, guys. We, we got to get Wolverine in there. I just imagine Garib coming down. I was like, no, nope, this needs the Wolverine. Let's put that on there. <laughs> Wolverine is like adding glitter to the cover. Yes. <laughs> you know? uh, now, uh, Sheena on with him and get the whole bed girl thing going yeah way more sense shanna on there and you're in good shape yeah Yeah. now the issue came packed with an awesome amalgam universe poster with like all the amalgam heroes like jumping across tax 
taxi cabs like in the Times Square of that universe, which is pretty awesome. And then backed with a Brian Douglas Ahern calendar, which was again a customary thing that was expected at the time, but also a blue Superman chromium trading card. So that's what you wanted every month, buying your wizard. But uh, do you guys have a favorite of these covers? Do you have a preference? I like the animated Darklaw one a lot. I, I just thought it was such a cool idea that they did it. And as much as Amalgam and, and whatever that <laughs> word was such a treat and a surprise and it'll never happen again. I do wish there were toys, especially because I love those Batman animated toys that were coming out at the time, too. Like and, and homemade heroes, like the people customizing, it was close. But like, God, imagine all of those just animated in that style as as much as we got with Justice League Unlimited, everything else, it would have been so cool. Really? So I, yeah. I love seeing that character that way. I'm on the flip side. I like the Cubert one. And I know the show isn't the biggest Cubert fan. <laughs> yeah, recent episodes, we made that clear. Yeah. Y'all are hard on those Cuberts. <laughs> those Cubert boys. Oh. But to me, they're like quintessential. To me, the Cuberts are more 90s than Jim Lee. Because wow. Jim Lee, to me, was like champagne of the 90s. But the Cuberts were ginger ale. And a 14-year-old can afford ginger ale. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, wow. The Cuberts were everywhere in the stuff I was reading and buying. So like, just seeing their stuff kind of takes me back. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating take. Okay, well, you know, uh, we're going to get into a little bit more Cubert talk here because our first cover story by friend of the podcast, Andrew Carden, was titled Beastie Boys. Gotta love it. And declares, quote, Mark Wade and Andy Cubert will make you care about Kazar. Yeah, I, I don't know if I buy it, but it's obvious that Wizard themselves didn't have much faith in this project either, guys, because despite the fact that this is the third article covering this new Kazar series in three consecutive issues and of course they said here playing it safe by adding wolverine to the cover uh furthermore there are phrases like quote a cheap knockoff of tarzan and conan fans couldn't care less about kazar the last name on anybody's lips make no mistake kazar is still well kazar a character who's had three previous series that all ultimately failed it's not inspiring a lot of confidence in the readers that are supposed to pick up this book you know <laughs> but it's interesting because it doesn't get any better when they ask mark wade about working on developing kazar he says quote i can't think of any character that embodies less any of the things that reflect my own life i'm not really much of a roughing it kind of guy and it's clear like ultimately as i read through this article that it was meant to be like a flashy 90s art book you know like that's kind of what you're you're telling us here will because he said uh andy kubert says quote he'll have a 90s type of body a real cut trim body updating the hair was definitely a challenge because i wanted to do something that was 90s and then the existence of the book it at all feels like it's like presented as a blank check scenario every time they interview Andy Kubert or Mark Wade because a Marvel editor in chief Bob Harris reveals quote Andy and Mark both really want to do this project and if those guys want to do something I'm willing to go along for the ride along for the ride is not I'm excited about Kazar okay <laughs> oh well we'll see where this goes now 
This book ultimately is, as I've been alluding to, has become my shaman's tears. Michael, every time he hears shaman's tears, he just can't keep a straight face. I've been reading Kazar. I'm trying to say, is this going to work? And I just hear it, though. It's been crammed down our throats of these issues, and I cringe. It's it's lame to me. It doesn't work. But I don't know. What do you say, Will? Kazar. You like Qbert. Do you like Qbert on Kazar? I don't like Qbert that much. <laughs> Never gave it a chance. It just, Savage Land is weird to me. I don't know what, like, I don't half know where it is. I don't get how it operates. I just, yeah, no, I never gave it a chance. Yeah, well, it's just one of those things which, you know, Mark Wade in a previous interview said like, well, I just, I didn't have anywhere to go when Andy said he wanted to do Kazar. Basically, like, I didn't expect him to choose that. And then I had to break the story. And his decision is, well, Shauna and Kazar are going to be a bickering couple because she loves the savage land, the living all natural, and he wants to go back to civilization. In the first two issues, he's hiding CD players in, in their house in their hut in the tree their son gets kidnapped because he gave walkie-talkies to a king of this one tribe and then the bad guys slaughter that tribe to steal their walkie-talkies so they can coordinate their attack like all of this is just like interesting but no like no 14 year old like you're saying well is going to be brought in by the relationship drama of this married couple with a kid you know you need a gen 13 edge that's why generation x and gen 13 were such a big deal but i want to say here that the the best part of this article and this is how i feel like wizard was always saving a topic that maybe they didn't have that much excitement about is there is a sidebar titled k who i guess is how you would say it. instead of kzar it's k who and that feature is a uh, made-up pitches for humorous kzar projects that were supposedly rejected by marvel so we're gonna go through that here and uh, get a few laughs what they open with is, fueled by the hype of the upcoming dino-filled Jurassic Park sequel, The Lost World, comic creators pitch Marvel their ideas on relaunching Kazar, the Savage Lands Dino Hunter Supreme. What follows are excerpts for rejected launch proposals. Oh, and all names have been withheld to protect the innocent. So the first one here... Kazar's head is bitten off by a giant prehistoric piranha, and his head is replaced with a giant harpoon! And he can control fish! <laughs> Kazar is felled in battle with Doom Monkey, an unstoppable engine of mindless monkey destruction, <laughs> but is resurrected as four different Kazars. There'll be K-Boy, K-Borg, Kazardicator, and, uh, Steel. <laughs> All right, next one. We get all them old Kazar comics from the 80s. Edit Zabu's hairy ass out of there. Digitize in Jabba the Hutt. This was the era of the special editions, which we will be returning to at the end of the episode. Lil Kazar and the Savage Babies. Oh, I feel like they were watching some Mystery Science Theater 3000, because they're always doing Jim Henson something babies. All right, uh, a caveman hopped up on cocoa leaves, freaks out, and breaks Kazar's back, forcing Zabu to don the loincloth and become the Savage Land's feline flatfoot of fury. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin Plunder, the 14th, last of a long line of plunders, dons the mantle of Kazar to protect the Savage Land from pirates and poachers as the savage that walks erect. <laughs> little phantom homage there, okay. Uh, next one here, Kazar, the next generation. <laughs> 
Two really big rocks fall on Kazar and Zebu, causing a bizarre accident where their brains are switched. Now Kazar is Zebu, and Zebu is Kazar, and everything's mixed up. Oh, it's a wacky adventure for the whole family. Next one here, Kazar gets beaten with a pipe and blown up, forcing Zabu to get a new partner. The twist? Instead of a loincloth, the new Kazar has long pants. <laughs> Remember the Kazar clone back from the 70s? Well, as it turns out... <laughs> cannot leave the spider clone in the past. They will never let Marvel live it down. But yeah, the, the whole idea of Kazar, I think any one of those pitches I would have bought. If they turned it into a comedy project, I would have actually probably been on board, but not try to take it seriously. Right. Now, uh, why don't we uh, get into this next one here, Will? Because the next cover story is a total 180 in terms of my interest. We're going from Kazar to one more time, which is interviewing the creative teams behind the second wave of 12 amalgam books arriving to comic shops during the week of April 1st, 1997. I totally forgot it was like an April Fool's kind of promotion. That's fantastic. Uh, but once again, providing mashups of Marvel and DC Comics characters, DC editor Mike Carlin explains the reasons for the return of amalgam. Quote, the editors, writers, and artists had a ball doing them. The comic shops had a ball dealing with them and the readers had a ball reading them. Nobody will ever believe us, but we really didn't plan this. There honestly is no other reason to do this except to have fun again. And then filling in for the late Mark Grunewald on the Marvel side is Tom Brevoort, who clarifies about the first amalgam experiment. They were successful, and we like giving the fans what they want. Now, we're not going to cover the comments from every creative team on every title, but about his artist on Spider-Boy Team-Up, writer Carl Kiesel praises Jose Ladron's work as, quote, astounding stuff. It's a weird mix, because his figures look like Jack Kirby, but his backgrounds are filled with detail, like a lot of European work, and his sense of design is wonderful. We threw more than 50 characters at him and they look great amen this is what is infinitely rereadable to me this is probably the amalgam book i go back to the most because every time i read it i'm just like there's so much going on in here there's so many pieces that he has added and yeah like they have all these different versions of the legion so he has to keep coming up with new costumes for all these characters and like the whole page is like surrounded by the legionnaires so it's, it's pretty neat I'm a terrible comic fan because I never read any amalgam. What? Why? I have not read a single one. I don't know. Like, they just never crossed my path. And, like, I never really understood, like, is there an overarching connecting story? Are they just contained one-shots? Like, I know there's the thing about access, and it was just, like, at this point in life, it seems too confusing to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, they just drop you in, so it's not like in every book you have access showing up. He was only in the Marvel versus DC books, and then at this time, the DC Marvel all access. So he was having his story going on trying to figure out why the universes were intersecting again but each book you pick up is like its own self-contained universe where the book has been going on for years and years and like they have letters pages where it says remember when this happened in this story this happened so like you're literally like just dropping into the middle of their universe they don't expect you to follow any type of narrative it's just do you think this is clever do you think this is fun uh, but well why don't you give us the next one here wizard reveals about the open of one of the wackier titles in this wave the adventure opens with manhattan totally destroyed and all the amalgam heroes dead except for lobo the duck the writer of the issue alan grant adds 
and boy is he pissed. <laughs> Wizard inquires as to whether Lobo the Duck can save the day, to which Grant replies, I don't know. I'll never have to write the end, will I? This is going to be just a kick-ass book. What else would it be with Howard the Duck and Lobo together? See, so there's your answer right there. They don't care. They're like, I'm having fun for one issue. Right, <laughs> we'll right. Do with it what we can. Right, that, which is probably like a dream project, you know? Write yourself in the corners. You don't have to, like, write yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I think is great, because it does sound like literally everybody who was ever involved in Amalgam just had the best time. Like, it was literally, it was just for fun and you see so you got the top talent especially that first wave and the second wave not is not bad either but for example here uh about her exciting x-patrol book writer barbara kiesel declares quote they're gonna show off their powers kick butts and take names i'm trying to see how many amalgams i could fit in it's revealed that these include such mashup creations as sea devil dinosaur although i don't know who the sea devil character is i know devil dinosaur are marvel but i'm like sea dinosaur i don't know and but this one's great prez master of kung fu <laughs> that sounds amazing because i love both of those concepts <laughs> yeah and then kiesel admits i'm not telling anyone the best one which is the first character husk turns into i'm quite proud of it but you'll have to get the book to see it which that was my favorite thing in that book uh, is that they had dial husk so instead of dial h for hero Husk would turn a dial and then rip off her skin and she'd be a new hero underneath. So when she's saying she tried to cram as many amalgams as she can, it's like literally every page, like Husk turns into a new amalgam. It's awesome. This That's is a great amazing. book to buy. Yeah. So if you're going to buy one, Will, start with that because it's pretty All fun. Right. Did they ever call? No, I guess because of they did. They did. There, there are trades that they did right after this of amalgam, but not yeah, not recently. Yeah, so they're so out of print. I'll have to sell a kidney. <laughs> <laughs> the single issues are not bad though. Most of them you can buy, you know, for a, a pretty you know affordable price. But this one, I don't know if anybody wants to buy it. So Kevin, why don't you give us this last one? Larry Hama begins his comments about Bat Thing by requesting of Wizard. Don't forget to mention that I wrote Dark Claw, the best-selling issue from last year. I never see that in print anywhere. The longtime writer of G.I. Joe and Wolverine explains the premise as, It's Man-Thing with wings. It's hard to boil this one down, but there's lots of violence. If you've never checked out these 1997 Amalgam books, other titles include Super Soldier Man of War, Dark Claw Adventures, which of course inspires the cover of this issue, Wizard, Iron Lantern Challengers of the Fantastic, JLX Unleashed, Generation Hex, Magnetic Men featuring Magneto, and Thorion of the New Gods. <laughs> Yeah, Wizard can't help but come up with their own amalgams, so in the bizarrely titled sidebar, United They Gaul, we get 10 new possibilities for character mashups from all available comic book universes. Yeah, so this is wild. So they're just opening it up saying, if, yeah, them DC Marvel amalgams are pretty spiffy, but how cool would amalgams be if you could combine heroes and villains from all the comic book universes? Let's see. So we'll go through these. Number 10, DC's pliable hero Elongated Man intermixes with longtime Spidey foe the Lizard to form the ultimate dispenser of justice and snaker of sinks, Elongator. <laughs> Elongator. Wow. You got to break that one down. You got to say it slow to really appreciate it. <laughs> Wonder Woman merges with Commander Adama, the dog food hawking leader of Battlestar Galactica, to form the spacefaring children's variety show of justice, Wonderama. <laughs> wow. So 
Some of these are so bad I thought I came up with them. <laughs> All right. Disfigured preacher supporting cast member Arseface becomes one with a dreadnought. One of them dime a dozen robotic Iron Man villains to create something that absolutely will not stop ever until you're a nauseous arsenaut. <laughs> okay. <laughs> God, that sounds so worse to say out loud. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, number seven, in a special all-Marvel amalgam, ferocious dragon Fin Fang Foom fuses with the energy blasted mutant outlaw Boom Boom to combat evil and step on Japanese people as Fin Fang Boom Boom. <laughs> <laughs> In yet another single company amalgam, we pull Captain Cold out of the Flash's rogues gallery and slap him together with longtime but ump bump Legion villain, the Time Trapper, and come up with a villain who will prove plumbers are a cowardly and superstitious lot. Captain Crapper. Come on, that's just... That doesn't have to be an amalgam. We need a Captain Crapper cereal and comic and everything else. Captain Crapper. <laughs> Wild West image heroine Winota Earp fuses with the demonic ghost rider to be condemned to colonial age typecast hell as Winona Rider. Oh, come on. Oh, I, bet, I bet she'll steal your heart, too. <laughs> Uh, number four, Modok, Marvel's mental organism designed only for killing, gets real friendly with Omac, DC's one-man army corps, to create Momac, the man on a mission against cookies. <laughs> number three, Impulse unites with totally useless Marvel baddie, the Plant Man, to form the bad girl craze ending, Implant Man. <laughs> Sounds like my arch nemesis. <laughs> In our only three-way combo, we stir together crappy 70s Marvel heroine Ms. Marvel. Wow, that's come a long way. Yeah. The X-Men Psylocke with the new Teen Titans villain Trigon to create a surefire Broadway hit, Ms. Saigon. Oh, uh, I don't... Now, Adam, you've talked to so many of the Wizard staff about the offices. Yeah. I hope there's somewhere to walk around and they got to stretch their muscles before that joke. <laughs> Oh, that belly laugh. They were proud of themselves, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and finally, number one, what do you get when you combine the Incredible Hulk villains, the UFOs, with Superman arch enemy conduit? Well, brush up on your Arnold Schwarzenegger impression as you come face to face with you conduit. <laughs> that Oof. one is rough. <laughs> That's what you wanted to end on. All right, Kevin, take us into this next feature. Our next feature in this issue is titled Dream Teams. In case you're wondering, it does not involve Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing, Larry Bird, or Michael Jordan. And for, hey, kids, for those of you who love sports as much as I do, those are basketball references. I had to, I had to look <laughs> On that the one Wizards podcast with Michael not here? Ah, <laughs> oh, we got it done. Uh, this is the wizard staff picks for what creative teams they would prefer to see working on the biggest titles in the industry. And to also notice this, inspired by a letter from a reader as well, yeah. which is really cool. Okay, for Amazing Spider-Man, they have 80s Spidey scribe Roger Stern and Wildstorm artist Brett Booth. For the Avengers, they have picked JLA writer Grant Morrison and artist of The Invisibles Phil Jimenez. For Captain America, former Cap writer Mark Wade, which we've heard this mentioned before here in this issue. And Cap artist from an earlier run, Ron Lim. For Daredevil, they have Sandman Mystery Theater writer Matt Wagner and Spider-Man 2099 artist Rick Leonardi. For Fantastic Four, Superman writer Dan Jurgens and recently departed Carlos Pacheco. Chico. Generation X, they've picked Legionnaire's writing team of Tom and Mary Beerbaum, and their original artist on the series, Chris Sprouse. For Ghost Rider, 
the dark and twisted, to say the least, Warren Ellis, an artist of Kazar, once ah! Andy Cooper. <laughs> for Incredible Hulk, creative Lobo Keith Giffen is said to be the perfect choice for writing a darkly humorous Hulk story. And Wolverine artist, not Andy, but Adam Cooper, selected to draw the Jade Giant. Finally, for Iron Man, Peter David is chosen to write Tony Stark's adventures, while his Aquaman artist Jim Califore is pegged to draw his alter ego. I have thoughts as well. <laughs> you have some thoughts. Okay. I uh, All right. Here's what killed me for this one. Okay. So later they give a rundown of Spider-Man as well. What's going yeah. on in all of his titles. There's a lot of this as they're saying, here's the perfect creative team for this comic, this comic, this comic. And for the Spider-Man ones, they're just shuffling the artists and writers that are already on Spider-Man books. Yes. Yeah. There was a point made later on. Oh, we want this Spider-Man title to be like against super villains and this one to be more of the personal stories and this one to be like down to earth villains and all. Okay. Totally makes sense. Totally get that. That works. If in this article they said this writer and artist would tell a better supervillain story, so they should be on this Spider-Man title. This writer and artist would tell a better mafia story like Down to Earth, so they should be on this Spider-Man title. I would have rolled with it a little more. But instead, all the Spider-Man ones, they're just shuffling people that are already there. What's it matter if I'm writing amazing or sensational or spectacular? Well, the only one that makes sense for me on the artist side, though, is Brett Booth, because he had done that backlash in Spider-Man, you know, yes. two issue crossover thing. And it was awesome. And the fact that he never got picked up, I guess Wildstorm was just paying better. I don't know. But the, I mean, that that was just something at the time. It felt like a perfect audition for him. So I, I think that's awesome. But then the funny thing is they talk about, you know, uh, Adam Kubert on Incredible Hulk. And right after this, he literally draws a an Incredible Hulk series of issues so i don't know if they knew that was in the pipeline or not but i just was reading uh some comics from this era leading into this and you there's an ad in wizard and in the comic for you know adam kubert on hulk and i was just like that's crazy and, and i'm sorry i didn't mean to jump ahead it's just since reading this issue that bothered me so much i've like had to get it out yeah it, it was a little bit lazy and especially they could have done anything why did they not say Todd McFarlane on a Spider-Man book again. Like that's just, and I know they know it's not realistic, but it's just like, just make the suggestion. This is your dream. You know, you want it. And some of these like Warren Ellis, would that work? Sure. It would. That's a great idea. Would it work in this era to sell toys and cartoons? No. Mm. It's a good point. So what direction do you want your company to go for? Tangent for just a second here. I wish Marvel had a Vertigo thing. Well, they tried it sort of with like creator owned with Epic and then, yeah, Yeah. and then Max. But you're right. Yeah, they never went full force into it, it felt like. Yeah. Uh, Now, I'll just read a few more of these here. Like Silver Surfer, they wanted to have the writer of Wonder Woman and the Max, William Mesner Loeb's, and Ron Garney continuing to draw Nordrad's adventures through the cosmos there because he had been drawing. There was actually a, a Ron Garney Silver Surfer poster that was included in an issue of Wizard like in the previous year so on spectacular spider-man they wanted ron mars because they said he knows how to write a young superhero is still getting the hang of things which i think ron mars would have done a great spider-man uh but they also want john ramita jr who's john spider-man all the time and in my opinion he's just going to be drawing those blocky characters that look like they were hastily cut out of a paper doll set but they all look like they have this like jagged outline to them you know it's just not for me um finally thor they said to give to Jeff Loeb, who had been writing The Thunder God and Heroes Reborn.
reborn during the Avengers run there. But they wanted Superman artist Stuart Eminem, which is cool. And then for Uncanny X-Men, Will, I'm curious to get your take on this. They wanted Tom McCraw and Tom Payer, who had been writing uh, Legion of Superheroes. But then they just said, and also keep Joe Mad. Joe Mad's not going anywhere. Again, this is your dream. There's no, you don't want John Byrne back on X-Men. Like there's got to be something you're imagining. So yeah, some of it was just like, here's what we want to influence. Listen to us publishers and do what we suggest, you know. But what else do we have here, Will? But wait, there's more. So many more. <laughs> Wolverine, Garth Ennis's edgy style is deemed perfect for Logan's monthly misadventures. The early 90s Ghost Rider team of Javier Salteres and Mark Texera would provide the gritty visuals. X-Factor. Ooh, I like this one. Writer of Starman, Wildcats, and others, James Robinson is touted as the perfect fit for this government-sponsored strike team, with newcomer Bernard Chang rendering the mutant fun on a monthly basis. X-Force. Chuck Dixon would write the stories and be reteamed with his former Robin collaborator, Tom Grummet, drawing the team of rogue mutants. I love that idea. Tom Grummet, man. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. X-Man. That guy. <laughs> Quantum and Woody writer Christopher Priest would write the disenchanted Nate Gray, while Umberto Ramos would provide the cartoony manga-influenced visuals. And then finally, for X-Men, Wizard is following the Lobdell track of having the same writers of Uncanny as they do on the adjective list title, so the two Toms are back, but the lesser-known Martin Eglin? Edgelin? Yeah, I don't know that name. Who had previously drawn Aquaman is selected as the ideal artist. Well, he, he clearly didn't make a name for him. So. Yeah, <laughs> oh, so. didn't continue on, I guess. But overall, like either these one you really want to support or is there a dream team you've always had in mind? You're like, I don't know why these people have not worked together yet on a book. Is there anything that comes to mind for you guys? It's crazy how in a way we're still in image style for some of this too. Like, Umberto Ramos, um, correct me, did he do Crimson later on? Yes. Okay, crazy different style. Really cool. They're putting it for X-Men. I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? That would have got me, like, a little more interested. And, you know, Joe Mad did things and then did other things and never really came back and finished stuff he was supposed to and all. But it's a whole other story. But I'm shocked that they didn't lean more towards artists of those style, which I think was a very interesting, different thing happening that didn't get copied like you you didn't see a Stephen Platt type person come out for Ramos or Joe Mad like I'm I'm shocked that that style didn't grab hold more at Marvel yeah it does feel like Stephen Platt on Thor would have been amazing like this would have been super gritty like the action of that would have been intense I, I feel like that would have been a perfect fit for him honestly I'd be curious Stephen Platt and Ghost Rider hmm. even yeah. just very you know I, I think the level of detail and get him like a really good anchor that can show depth to it as well hell did jay lee ever do ghost rider hmm he did namor but i don't know about ghost rider yeah which made i did understand that when he did do it like, <laughs> really for you all right whatever <laughs> what was your thought will well i was just thinking i would love to see a pairing of like does it have to be marvel are we no, 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 you can just go. Let's just run the gamut here. Yeah. I would love to see a Batman story drawn by Jim Lee and written by Frank Miller because we've never had that before. Hmm. I mean, it, it, some people think we've had that before, but <laughs> but we've never had a complete 
a complete product of that. And I would love to see that. That's my thing. My dream team is how would that series have ended? I'm still stuck on that like 20 years later. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I I, I was going to say for me, I mentioned this on our Jim Lee tribute special, but I really want, I, I would keep Peter David as the writer, but I want a 2099 book drawn by Jim Lee. Jim Lee drawing that universe, I think, would be fascinating. I think he'd do an excellent job. So, yeah, that, that's another one. But I think that's what you just say. Well, I'd like Jim Lee to draw every book. Let's just right, right. <laughs> why don't we just get him over there? Breaking news, geeks. Manscaped now sells beard products. That's right. They are once again revolutionizing men's grooming with the brand new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. From a beard trim to a fresh shave, the technology behind the Beard Hedger Pro Kit allows you to shape your signature beard look. Now you can finally use Manscaped products that make your drapes match your carpet by going to manscaped.com and use the code WIZARDS20 for 20% off and free shipping. Now here's the thing, Michael. Alan Moore certainly carved out a look for himself when it came to facial hair. But here's the thing, geeks. You aren't a genius comic book writer who might also be a wizard. So it's time to tame your mane. No one likes a weird beard. So say goodbye to all your stubble trouble with Manscaped's Pro Beard Kit. Manscaped sent us both their Beard Hedger Pro Kit. And I used it this morning. I tried out the Beard Conditioner. The beard shampoo, and I've been using a lot of different products for shading my beard and shaving my head and so on and so forth. This stuff, not only did it smell really good, it felt like my skin felt rejuvenated a little. And I used the beard hedger and I barely knew that it was touching my face. It was so smooth. It was fantastic though. I really liked it. The design is so unique that it felt really good in my hand too. And I've used a ton of different buzzers. This one, unbelievable. It has a nice edger for when you're doing like under your mustache area or you're like under your lip or around your ears and such. I really liked it. Very cool stuff. Well, Michael, here's the thing, because when I was a kid, I thought shaving was going to be awesome. I'd watch my dad and think, oh, it's going to be cool to have whiskers to shave, you know? <laughs> but now as an adult, shaving is like my least favorite thing. I put it off for so long. You know, it is far from a luxurious experience. But with the Manscaped Beard Hedger Pro Kit, I have an excuse to stop shaving now and get my beard game going strong. <laughs> if you grow a beard, I'll die. I'll love it. <laughs> Well, it's all about the gear, Michael, like you said. So tell them a little bit more about the tools that are for more than just your family jewels. So it starts with the beard hedger, which, I, like I said, is a juggernaut that fixes faces. It's really wild. First off, you get the cordless trimmer with a rotating wheel that gives you 20 haircut lengths all in one guard. It's this half sizes and everything. So no more messy drawers full of all this extra add-ons. It literally is one unit with one head to put on. And I really was impressed by that. And here's the thing. It's waterproof. So you can actually shave in the shower. You avoid. I all did. I did. I used it in the shower. It worked fine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also got a titanium coated T-blade. It's tough on hair, but smooth on your face. Like Michael was saying, it's got single stroke efficiency that brings satisfaction one stroke at a time. And the pro kit doesn't end there though, because they've created four dermatologist tested formulations for your post-trib care. Michael, tell them a little bit more about it. So first, like I said, was this beard shampoo and conditioner, right? Funny enough, I was thinking of I'm using this, right? I've been shaving my head or had short hair for so long. I haven't used conditioner on my head. It's got to be 15 years. And using it on my beard felt 
felt funny, but it really felt good. Like it kind of like softened the, the hairs to make it easier to cut and everything. I was really impressed by it. You need to remember all of your hair is different. Beard hair is more coarse and easier to damage than your hair on your head or lack thereof on my head. That's why this shampoo conditioner is specially designed to moisturize, reduce ingrown hairs, which is a big issue that I have, and replace natural oils and promote beard health. Also, the kit has what is called Manscaped's beard oil. No one wants a guy whose beard is like brittle and dry, so the oil relieves the dryness on both the beard and the skin beneath while adding a little shiver and shine, making you look extra fine. Uh, you have the beard balm. It's this pomade that shapes and styles and moisturizes and tames for a sculpted look. It's sure to make Thunderstrike Eric Masterson jealous, but that's not hard. His beard, not so impressive. The Beard Pro Kit also comes with three free gifts. A beard brush, a beard comb, and scissors. Honestly, like they thought of everything. It's all in this kit. So whether it's for you or the bearded person in your life, we want you to go get your 20% off and free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code WIZARDS20. It's the Manscaped Beard Hedger. One stroke, one guard, 20 lengths. Now back to the show. But let's move on here because another artist who was uh, in, at a zenith here, the Wizard Q&A with Alex Ross is catching this superstar of the comics world at an interesting point in his career. With massive hits like Marvel's and Kingdom Come to his name, Ross had opted to use his blank check, another one of those, to make Uncle Sam. Two issues that are not even based on the strange comic book version of the character, but the classic army recruitment poster, just the embodiment of America. As Ross explains, Quote, I knew that no matter what I did following Kingdom Come, I couldn't expect the same kind of success. I've been lucky enough to manipulate circumstances twice in a row to my favor, but this time I wanted to engineer new circumstances rather than hope lightning will strike a third time. As for what the book will be about, Ross reveals matter-of-factly, quote, it's a soapbox like comic book very preachy it's planned to charge up your conscience about america in a hopefully entertaining way which i think is so interesting he's just like i'm not gonna lie this is like propaganda i got my ideas i'm putting them out there and then possibly though feeling the effects of his success ross says jokingly of his writer and uncle sam steve darnell quote he owes his shot at the big time to me and i'm always gonna remind him of that then without such a humorous bed he elaborates quote to steve this is his big book and demand all his attention i like that influence and that power <laughs> so and he because he had previously mentioned he didn't like working with these big writers that had so many other projects and so this was just one more thing they were doing kurt Busick, mark wade you know in this case you know he's like this guy belongs to me and he's gonna write my vision you know so i picked this up back in the day at least the first issue so did you guys read uncle sam in 97 or since then did you know it existed and if so do you like it oh i knew about it i mean it put steve darnell on the map <laughs> <laughs> you know he wrote that thing and that thing and that, that thing <laughs> the funny thing is i've never read it i've never read it but it haunts me it's it's like a wall book in like the dingiest comic shop you'll ever like walk into. <laughs> like it's always it's a like a prestige format book. Yep. It's always on the wall. It coasts on the like fame of Alex Ross, but I've never heard anybody say they've read it. I've never heard anything good 
nor bad about it. It just it's a thing that exists. Yeah, Kevin, were you aware? I, I, before this article, I thought it was the DC character who was in what team was he in? Infinity Inc. or Justice Society or All Star? Yeah, All Stars. Yeah, I thought it was the same one, and I was like, "What a weird person for Alex Ross to do a comic about." Eh, whatever. Now that I see what it is, I'm like, "Okay, so is this Alex Ross's politics and opinions for two issues?" And if so, do I want to read that? Like, I think I've had to become like a separate the art from the artist person in the last few years. <laughs> Thank you, social media and everything else. And Alex Ross is one of those people. I'm like, I like your art, and that's as far as I've thought about your life. So I don't know that I want to even I'm saying I don't know what's in this at all. Even if I completely agreed with him, I don't know that that's what I want to read from Alex Ross from. There's certain people who's I I think could do something with that. I don't know that he's that person. It's a strange leap to take. Like, this is what I really want to do. And you're like, really? But you're going to go the rest of your life just drawing classic superheroes again after this. I mean, there's lots of, like, American and Christ imagery, especially in Superman and Kingdom Come. Like, he does put stuff like that in there, but it's not the focus of the story. So I'm I'm curious. I, I'm probably going to end up reading it now, though, just because <laughs> I'm so curious after this article. Because I'm like, how radical could you be in 97? Is it like whitewater joke? Well, you know, like... Well, what? that's the thing. Like, because, you know, I read it. I'm, I'm 15 when it's coming out. I bought it simply because, okay, I bought every issue of Kingdom Come. This is the next Alex Ross thing. I'll buy it. And then I read it and it was totally over my head. I got none of it. It was like watching the news is basically what it is. It's basically just saying, look at all the terrible things in the world. Uh, Just in general, there's violence, there's racism, there's hatred, there's this on American soil. It's all happened. He doesn't really point the finger necessarily. It's kind of like, like the worst side of capitalism has caused this to happen, sort of. But it's just like, Uncle Sam, the embodiment of Uncle Sam is all worn out and he's a bum that pees his pants and just is on the street. Like he's just decrepit because the American dream is no longer in focus for him. And then there's another version of Uncle Sam who's like, you know, the real right wing, you know, Rush Limbaugh Uncle Sam. And they have a fist fight in the second issue and the original Uncle Sam comes back. And I don't know. It's it's very esoteric, I guess is what I would say, because it's just a lot of ideas and a lot of things things but it doesn't have like a straight narrative per se so you're just like all right you you did a lot of imagery okay thanks that's what we want you for but i don't know steve darnell's writing contributions made me think so all right but let's move on to here because some of that thinking might have caused some pain so kevin why don't you tell us about this last article Finally, in Theater of Pain is an interview with Matt Wagner about his long-running series Sandman Mystery Theater, starring the 1930s gas mask-wearing incarnation of the crime fighter, not the Neil Gaiman dream-slash-Morpheus character. Relating the hard-edged noir themes to Wesley Dodds' choice of costume, Wagner states, That disguise is very insular, so I wanted to make the crimes he'd be dealing with very intimate. And he does. Close <laughs> personal crimes that dealt with hate and sex. Things you find in a darkened bedroom, not things you'd find in bank robberies. As for the Sandman's less-than-heroic stature, that too was by design, as Wagner reveals. Wesley has a little bit of a gut, but that's what he's got the gun for. It makes things a little fairer. I haven't seen one millionaire today who looked like Bruce Wayne. 
And the Endo Sandman Mystery Theater is really a love story, says Wagner. We focus on brutal subjects because we're playing this against the ongoing romantic relationship between Wesley and Diane. It's two core primal motions that are in conflict. I have not read this. However, for those following me on social media and plugs at the end of the show, 2023 is also the first time I'm reading Sandman, the Neil oh. Gaiman Sandman run. I've, despite reading comics all my life, I've never did Sandman. I'm doing it as a follow along with the podcast that's redo- rereading it this year. And there's already been references to Sandman Mystery Th- Theater. I'm only up to Doll's house. Yeah, that, that's the thing is they mentioned in this article that, yeah, that Dream has visited Wesley Dodds and he's kind of inspired his actions and to take on the persona and stuff. So it's, I thought it was fascinating how much Neil Gaiman really did try to bring all the Sandman mythos together, a lot like James Robinson did with all the Starman mythos. You know, like it's just like every incarnation, it is all one universe. I was like, that's pretty neat. Yeah, and I'm, I'm super curious now. Uh, it turns out that work does not have any of Sandman Mystery Theater at all. Not a single collection, so I'm going to end up having to find it elsewhere somehow. However, I also don't know what order to read anything in, and I don't want to ruin my Neil Gaiman Sandman reading at all. And much like you were mentioning for Uncle Sam, you know, the age you were when it came out, I I was a little older, 97, than you were by a couple years. But I also wonder if I could have handled that level of storytelling and what they go into not to go into certain topics on this podcast but like i don't watch svu mm-hmm, and i stopped right. watching criminal minds a long time ago there's certain things that i do not watch for my entertainment certain stories so hearing some of this stuff in mystery theater i'm like do i want to but also if it's that good then i can handle it because it's that good so I'm super curious. I'll, I just got like my reading list now from this episode. Uncle Sam, Sandman Mystery Theater, yeah. Hadar, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Will, did you ever delve into the world of the Sandman? I did not. I have no, my only familiarity with the character was I had his action figure for a while. But other than that, like, this is all news to me. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, I became aware of him because I remember seeing at the comic book store, like, the covers were always really gauging because sometimes they were photo covers or they were very much in, like, the Neil Gaiman Sandman style where they were kind of painted or very unique in the way they stood out. But I didn't actually read it until years ago. I bought, like, a mystery lot of comics. And so I just got all this stuff, most of it, like, indie books from the 80s and early 90s. And I got a couple issues of Sandman Mystery Theater. And I was like, yeah, this is pretty heavy, you know? people getting kidnapped and tortured and it's all this 1930s noir style so it's real you know grim and gritty things happening there it is well written i you know i've read the first arc of it and it's well organized let me put it that way like i don't know how well i feel like am i connected to the characters because they're all kind of doing their own thing this diane character is the most human of anybody and she's surrounded by all these men in different levels of authority and then you have this wesley dodds guy who's just creeping around in the shadows trying to do what he can to make the world right it's okay i don't know if i recommend it 100 unless that is your favorite thing if you like stray bullets and all these other like you know just real dark crime books that were coming out around this time it's it's in that vein uh but i will tell you if they were making a sam and mystery theater movie my pick to play wesley dodds would be paul giamatti a hundred percent this guy is a giamatti <laughs> So speaking of comic book adaptations uh, in Hollywood, we are going to get into some Heroes in Motion. Hey 
Now, the Silver Surfer animated series is the top story of the trailer park section in this issue. Reportedly, this is going to be premiering as a special in November 1997 in preparation for the regular series launch in January of 1998. Quote, the Silver Surfer will now continue his struggle against evil with exciting new stories and advanced animation for the 90s audience. It's mentioned that Silver Surfer is among seven new shows coming to Fox Kids this fall, which includes TMNT, The Next Mutation, Bogley, The New Adventures of the Jungle Book, The Adventures of Sam and Max, Freelance Detectives, and something called Home to Rent, which I looked into this. It was a French cartoon with these primary colored alien characters originally released a year earlier as Space Goofs. And then they thought the kids are really going to get on board for Home to Rent. (laughs) I don't know what that is about. Getting back to Silver Surfer, did you guys ever give this cartoon a chance? Was it on your radar in 97? No, I had the trading card that took the animation from the animated series. Oh, I didn't ever do that. But I those. never yeah. actually saw the animated series. But Home to Rent sounds like the kind of thing that would be on like Hulu now. You know, like <laughs> yes. it would be for grown ups. That's that though, that's the sequel series to Home Improvement is home to rent and there it's about go. them running a, an airbnb and tim the tool man taylor's always souping up the airbnb that's what that is <laughs> so i actually remember silver surfer having like a preview episode premiere you know whatever a hype oh, okay because i was totally like a all right saturdays is watching you know the cartoons and flipping between the channels and then watching uh wrestling i think was superstar still on Maybe it was. If there was wrestling to be found, I was watching it after cartoons, though. But it's such a different animation style than X-Men and Spider-Man were. It's kind of trippy. It's cosmic. It's, you know, like, I've never done it, but I assume people who've done drugs, like, very much enjoyed the animation on there. And then when it came on, I watched all of it because I loved Infinity Gauntlet and a lot of those characters. And this was Cosmic Marvel. Silver Surfer's the focus, but it's really a way to do Cosmic Marvel. And I thought it was really cool. Now, funny thing is my ex, when we were just dating, she was looking for like something Marvel to watch. She knew I like comics. She was looking for something Marvel to watch. She went for Silver Surfer and I'm not quite sure why. If it was on like Netflix at the time or like it was easily accessible for the whole thing. And I think only lasted one season, maybe like 13 episodes, you know, like not that long, really. So she watched all of that. Well, then funny thing was um, the, the end credit for the first Avengers movie got spoiled for me before seeing the movie. So I knew what was coming, but she didn't know. But I knew she watched the Silver Surfer show. So we're in the theater and I'm watching. I'm looking over because I know Thanos is about to appear in the end credits. Lost her mind. And the <laughs> only reason she knew who the heck that was was because of that Silver Surfer cartoon. That is amazing. And that's that was like the only, unless you read comics, you didn't know who the heck Thanos was before that moment. One of my best friends called me up and he's like, why is Hellboy in Avengers? <laughs> and I'm like, oh no. So oh. I, I've ended up doing the whole series twice. And for... 13 episode like that era marvel it's as good as you're gonna get for it very cosmic very open mind philosophical well that's the thing this is my theory about why this even got greenlit because everybody thinks silver surfer looks cool nobody knows that he is the most boring marvel character it's like going to church when you read silver (laughs) surfer i'm sure stan lee loved this animated series because it's 100 percent how he wrote the character but this did not belong on Fox Kids. This belonged on Adult Swim or on the MTV animation slate. 
this would have been right there next to the max and would have fit perfectly like you're saying stoned college kids watching this and just like having their philosophical discussions about all these things because it's so like even just the scripting is so above like a seven to ten year old's head the kids who are going to watch this won't know half the words being used and most of it is inner monologue while the surfer is you know just cruising through the galaxies so i yeah it's it's bizarre i didn't know it existed at the time and i didn't find out about it till years and years later and and when i went back to watch it i was just like why? Why would you do this? Like, I, I'm almost certain they saw Batman, the animated series. Oh, you can make it more adult. And then they're just like, yeah, well, we'll just take that to the nth degree where it's literally for adults. And even like the, the thing that they changed, which I thought was strange, you mentioned Thanos, is one of the episodes has Thanos and Beta Ray Bill. And Thanos worships Lady Chaos instead of Lady Death. Like that was somehow like too intense for kids to handle. I just thought that was bizarre. Like, oh, my Lady Chaos. <laughs> but yeah definitely not for the kids good to put you to sleep at night though you need a rest watch some oh. silver surfer <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to Neil Gaiman here, just real quickly, they mentioned that the Sandman and the Death, the High Cost of Living are both in development for live action projects at Warner Brothers. There are rumors that Gaiman may direct one of the projects himself, uh, but neither comes to fruition. Uh, of course, we wonder now, do we know, is the Sandman coming back to Netflix that they get a green light for season two? I only watched like the first three episodes, so I, it didn't catch me. They did get officially season two. I cannot watch season one until I am done with this year-long reading of the series uh, okay. because i've been told the way that the netflix show is because they know it's coming they've already like they put certain seeds and setups for things uh -huh. that the way i'm reading comic could spoil future things for me so i should just wait until i'm done and Smart. then do the series yeah Okay, um, now more in my wheelhouse, though, it's briefly mentioned that the rumored syndicated Generation X TV series will now be put on the back burner in favor of developing another TV movie without the involvement of the original writer or executive producer, Eric Blakenly. He's not going to be continuing for this continuation, which also never happens. I would have taken either one. Give me the syndicated series. Give me the TV movie. I loved that cast. I, I enjoyed that a lot. But as for Generation X's rival team of rowdy teens, we've been talking about Two writers with no major credits named Jeremy Miller and Dan Cohn are reportedly writing a live-action movie script for Disney for a Gen 13 film, while the animated version of the movie is slated for a September 1997 release, which quickly becomes a never- release date so now the one thing we've been just following here uh is the batman and robin movie news which is always barely news but it takes up so much of the trailer park section everybody is so excited for batman and robin so it's reported that joel schumacher will direct an episode of er as a thank you to those producers for letting george clooney be in the movie it's like okay supermodel l mcpherson who plays bruce wade's girlfriend for like one and a half forgettable scenes in the movie uh said on her day David Letterman interview, quote, I'm the only character in the movie who doesn't have a superhero costume. I wear very nice clothes, but they're just normal clothes. I was hoping to have a costume. You read the script and thought you were a superhero girlfriend? Like, <laughs> my super ex-girlfriend? Uma Thurman? Hey, connection. <laughs> you think you read the script? Yeah, there's also that. <laughs> Though we do get one juicy tidbit, as a fifth Bat film is expected to happen at this time, and it's reported that, quote, Daily Variety listed the possible Bat villains as Egghead, Mad Hatter, King Tut, and Scarecrow. Uh, with that news, would you guys have wanted a third Schumacher Batman with any of those villains? 
Sure. Think- <laughs> Scarecrow, yes. That's what I always heard that like that Howard Stern in a later issue, I think they said was reported to play Scarecrow. That's what I remember. I was like, maybe, maybe not, just because he was good in private parts. I don't know if that means he could act. But well, and I mean the Howard Stern still in this era of the nineties was still your, you know, shock jock style and all. And I mean, yeah. I stayed up at nights to watch the E, you know, versions right. of his shows and everything. <laughs> But you watch his interviews with Letterman or even when he was on America's Got Talent. That's a whole other side of him, which could have been very interesting to see that version of Howard Stern act. Absolutely. I would have seen it. I don't hate the Schumacher movies, you know, like they're not great, but I didn't I certainly didn't hate them then. I didn't know any better, you know, so like if they'd made a a third Schumacher or a fifth movie, I would have been right there watching it and (laughs) would have taken whatever they gave me. I mean, they were clearly on like the third tier of bat villains by this point. But yeah, I'm I'm up for it. If they had gone King Tut, that would have been fascinating. I would want Wayne Knight to play King Tut. That's what I would want at that time. (laughs) That would be great. Now we're going to move from movies to merch, because there was a lot of fun stuff coming out for you to buy with your favorite comics characters involved. So let's check out some Merch Madness. Wizard features dozens of photos of the new action figures previewed at Toy Fair 97 in the Toy Chest section, but also asked comic book writer Chuck Dixon to report on his favorite new products. He says, I was ecstatic to see two Bane action figures. One has a standard Bane looking exactly like his four-color counterpart, and the other is an armored version to be included in a two-pack with a silver-armored Batman. Poison Ivy and Mr. Freeze look less like the comic book versions than I had expected. Sorry, guys. Ivy doesn't bear much resemblance to Uma Thurman, either. We're all action figure fans here, so of everything on display, what toys did you own in 1997, or would you want to own now? Yeah, I'm curious, because I know you guys have picked up a lot of figures over the years, but at this point in time, I will just say for me, the only figures I was buying were the McFarlane Kiss figures, which are on the very last page. And I've already talked about that on the show, but like I was all in on Kiss at this point and I was still reading comics, but I had stopped collecting comic book action figures for the most part. And so like, I was just like, when's the next Kiss figure coming out? That's what I want. Although I will say the Spawn movie action figures, I never wanted to own them, even though I mostly liked the movie. It's just, they were boring, but they were very, very accurate representations of the actors. And for that era i think they deserve to be applauded that they were able to get the likenesses that spot on not since the costume changing bruce wayne figure by ketter that looked exactly like michael keaton had we gotten a likeness that was just spot on so i i spotlight that even though i didn't actually buy them (laughs) (laughs) so at this time i was working at a little store called hills Ooh, and you know, the toy collecting, everything was starting to really blow up. So what happened was when there were new toys coming in, they would go back to the layaway department, which is where I was stationed to work most of the time anyways. So all of your collectors would have to come back there and whoever's working layaway department would have the case behind the counter for safety. And you'd pull out a figure. Okay, I got one of these. And it was kind of like a lottery to decide who would get them. So I pulled out Slave Girl Leia or whatever, whatever hell it's called in here. 
They don't call it that here. I think it's Java Java Prisoner. Enslaved Princess Leia. Okay. So I pull that out because Wizard tells me it's rare. And I was like, oh, I got one of these. And this guy in the line's like, oh, I got three of them. I'm like, you're the reason I can't find one. Because <laughs> you, you have this. I think I bought it later that day and I still have it somewhere in storage. Oh, wow. I got it as a gift. It's mentioned in here, but there's not a picture. I do have the Millennium Falcon carrying case because I wanted the wedge figure. That was the only reason. So I think I still have that in package somewhere. Uh, the Total Justice stuff I liked. I have some, but not these ones sitting around. I bought two of the Savage Lands. These were at Hills. The Storm and Dinosaur and Angel and Dinosaur ones, which just got opened within the last couple of years because my kid was going through his Jurassic Park phase and he saw dinosaur toys in Grandma's Attic which were mine, still in package, but he wanted them. So I, I was okay with opening them up. They and were Kazar he... adjacent, so I'll, I'll allow yeah. that. Yeah, open them <laughs> up. Uh. <laughs> and then, now, I there's no mention in the article, but I absolutely remember this being an issue at the time. So there's the Spider-Man line. There's a Daredevil one, but he has all the like attachments and everything for the Web Wars. And then there's a Wasp one, which is not your classic Janet Van Dyne. It's like a, you know, she's been mutated figure. And I remember people being mad. Like, I got Spider-Man figures with all this crap on it to just sell more toys. I finally get a new character, and they got all this crap on it for the Daredevil one. But I could just open a package, take that stuff off of a Daredevil figure. But I don't have a Wasp figure. I have this weird thing now. And I, I swear I remember people being mad about it. It must have been in a different magazine or maybe... Yeah, well, we, we talked about it in, in uh, our Toy Fair specials because they covered Toy Fair 97 there too. And yeah, it's just like, it's ridiculous. It's like, finally a Wasp and she's just all gross. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, toy collectors? mad about something <laughs> really they think a female character is an attractive <laughs> i totally had um i still have them the total justice figures but kb re-released them as jla figures and they took out the attachments so you just got the characters without all the accessories so i bought them that way and then i loved any of the toy biz x-men stuff based on joe mad i know he's not like a favorite around here but i ate up anything he did with x-men i still love his redesigns so any of the figures that were based on him like in a former episode you guys talked about the storm with the short hair with the like kind of they're not really ponytails but it's like a it's an angular bob with some <laughs> extensions like i loved that design and you guys said it was so stupid and i'm in my car like no it's not it's not <laughs> no it's I, I will say i mean it just doesn't excite me but i appreciate all he was able to do to freshen up the characters it's just not for me so i it's not offensive to me the way some art is offensive to me it's just like not my style so yeah i, I don't celebrate joe mad but i'm just like yeah everybody loves him that's pretty good <laughs> right, right. Uh, Kevin, take us out of action figures and into some other ephemera out here. Ooh, ephemera. Yes. All right. In their junk drawer section, Wizard highlights some unique comic book ephemera. First up are two Neil Adams prints, one of which is an unused cover for X-Men 56, 
which was rejected because the design obscured the title. This print costs $150. And if you can look at it, that's a really cool cover. I understand why they didn't use it because it does obscure it, but that's a really cool image on there. Uh, the second is an all new Batman drawing by Neil Adams in his 1970s style, which was commissioned exclusively for the Warner Brothers Studio Store Art Galleries. God, I miss those. And would set you back $275 in 1997 money too. That's a lot. Yeah. Staying in the DC Universe, a Kyle Rayner Green Lantern statue limited at 4,000 pieces is available at this time for an affordable $175. <laughs> As Wizard describes it, quote, each statue is hand-painted and depicts Kyle in a funky pose. Also available in bookstores at this time was The Tick. Mighty Blue Justice, which was a companion piece to the animated series packed with character designs and details of all the superhero wannabes living in the city. We have the tick Mighty Blue Justice in our house. I showed my kids the first two seasons on DVD and they loved it. And so I bought that book for my son and he's like, I don't want to read it. I just want to watch it. So it's been more for me. It's it's very detailed. But I was such a fan of the animated series tie-in books back in the day. Like I loved going to Barnes & Noble or Crown Books in my area. It was a chain. And they would have the Encyclopedia from Beavis and Butthead or This Book Sucks from mm -hmm. Beavis and Butthead or Bart Simpson's Guide to Life. Like that was the section I always went to just like the humor comedy section. They would put those books in and I just lived for those that they would give you more details about this universe. So Tick Mighty Blue Justice is just a, it fits perfectly with all those other uh, publications. But did any of these items stand out to you guys as something you would have bought had you known about it or did buy? <laughs> I do have Mighty Blue Justice oh, and I have Bart Simpson's Guide to Life. And I have the other one you mentioned. The encyclopedia? <laughs> the en this book sucks. I have oh, that one. Okay. Because <laughs> I am a big fan of those kind of books too. And like, you can always find them thrifting these days. But I had the Bart Simpson book at that time. The others I found more recently. But what I would have gotten, well, what I would have lusted over was the Warner Brothers Studio Store print you know like nobody had that kind of money back then that was for your like rich bachelor <laughs> but i still always wanted that stuff yeah if i had been smart i knew a guy who worked at the warner brothers studio store gallery it was like this family party and he was somebody's husband i remember going oh you work there that's so cool because i was in that store all the time and i should have just worked the deal like do you get an employee discount i want to get this you know little thing for batman the animated series or whatever but you know they're like a thousand thousand dollars or whatever right. it felt like yeah beavis and butthead book came with the remote that had like 20 different quotes from them Ooh, i don't think it was either of those that must have been a later one okay there there was one um hardcover rectangle shape part of it looked like the tv and then you had the remote on the side so the book part was the tv part and then the remote was just like dead space after you took the remote off but the remote was like all the quotes you would expect from them about I'm going to say 20 different ones for different buttons. I got my brother that for Christmas. It was his favorite Christmas present that year. <laughs> and he annoyed the hell out of the entire family because he could, he, he just wandered around with the remote all day. Like, <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> all of Christmas day. I just feel like who needed that remote? Every junior high kid at that time was do just walking around talking like Beavis and Butthead constantly. So like that you didn't need oh, yeah. to have a, a, you know, a box to, to recreate it. <laughs> I, 
I mean, we're going to have our children come home and do whatever stupid quotes, whatever the kids are watching for the yeah. entire day, much like we did with Beavis and Butthead. Oh, smack them. My kids are repeating the memes from TikTok every day. Hey, watch this one. Well, Mine tries to rickroll me, so. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, let's uh, get ready to close this thing out here. But before we go, we have to rev up Jim and Todd's hype machine. All right, so first up here, Spawn Month reveals Angela's secrets. Kind of says it all, but Todd McFarlane elaborates, quote, That's right, Angela's origin will finally be revealed. This is the thing my readers have been demanding to know. So Curse of Spawn number nine is going to tell the tale, and uh, it, it, there's also reportedly a repainted cosmic Angela figure, which will be sent exclusively to comic book retailers who order the issue in increments of 100. Also, when I hear this news, it feels a bit hypocritical because an article a few issues issues back that was just a profile of Angela when she was on the cover. Todd basically said, oh, I want to keep all the details of Angela's life a secret. I'm going to make her appearances very limited so we don't wear out the character. Then he's like, oh, here they are. <laughs> you want to know everything? You're going to know everything. So that's the power of the almighty dollar. That's how I feel. He's had to pay some bills. Um, now, additionally, for the first time in a year, Todd McFarlane will be penciling an issue of Spawn with number 62. So he hadn't done anything since issue 50. The Buzzbox reports on a rumor that the recently reunited rock band Kiss has made a deal with McFarland to produce a new line of Kiss comics at Image, which is something that becomes known as Psycho Circus in 1998. But in the meantime, Wizard asks Gene Simmons about any 1997 comics projects on the horizon. And Jim McLaughlin's very excited about this. He's like, it was so cool. Says, quote, we're taking the pages that ran in the Kiss Nation book, reprinting them in a full magazine size and adding more pages. It'll be published by Sterling McFadden. I own all of these guys. Every issue of Psycho Circus, <laughs> the Kiss Nation book, all of these things. Because like I said, I was as of the year before this, I had become a huge Kiss fan. So every bit of news that was coming out. I mean, I will say the Kiss Nation book is disappointing. It's like on the cover, it says Kiss Meet the X-Men. But it's a mess of a story. It has all these different artists. It goes back in like reality into another reality and then into this reality where Kiss meets the X-Men. Like, I don't know what's going on, like why they mixed everything up. So it's kind of bizarre. But that's the McFarland news. All the Jim Lee news that was in this issue was handled in the Heroes, you know, Reborn Again story. So we already handled that. So that means it's time for the tally. In this issue, Todd McFarland mentioned just four times. Jim Lee trumps him again with six mentions. Sufferings are running total to Jim Lee, 408 mentions. Todd McFarland, 403. Will he get it back? <laughs> Team Jim, huh, Will? Team Jim. <laughs> All right. Well, as we close out here, we're going to reach for some laughs and hope they're there with Turok's Top 10. So let's get into this. Our wizard top 10 this time around is the top 10 scenes that didn't make it into the Star Wars special edition. So number 10, C-3PO discovering that the Java he just dropped into the fire wasn't quite dead. <laughs> number nine, 
Uncle Owen backhanding Luke to get him to stop whining about power converters. <laughs> Number eight, the startled Ronta taking a giant crap on the Moss Isley Street. <laughs> so the Ronta must be that bushy thing with like curly horns. Is that it? No, it's the the long neck one. It's oh, kind of the like dinosaur looking thing. thing. Okay. I, I mean, there's poo jokes in uh, episode one. Like, doesn't Jar Jar step in something? So I'm kind of shocked that Lucas didn't go for the easy poo joke here. Yeah. <laughs> Number seven, Han Solo backhanding Luke to get him to stop whining about 10,000 credits. <laughs> There's a running gag here, folks. Number six, Porkins with his shirt off eating fried cheese. Oh, leave Porkins alone. He's a hero. Number five, Obi-Wan backhanding Luke to get him to stop whining about going to Alderaan. <laughs> I want a supercut of all these backhanded deleted scenes. Number four, the C-3PO R2-D2 car chase from the Palace Hotel and ballroom to the Honorable Mayor Richard J. Daly Plaza. What? You're from New York. This sounds like some sort of New York thing, Kevin. Anything? I thought it was a Blues Brothers joke. I think it is. There we go. I think it is. Okay. Number three, Darth Vader backhanding Luke to get him to stop whining about being his son. <laughs> Number two, Boba Fett actually doing something. Oh, and then when he does, people kind of don't like it. Book of <laughs> Boba Fett. Uh, all right. Number one, R2-D2 backhanding Luke to get him to stop whining about his secret mission for the Alliance. Okay. <laughs> R2-D2 backhanding Luke would be the funniest button yeah. on that yeah, imaginary supercut. So that's fantastic. Well, guys, this has been great. Full of laughs on our own. We didn't need a top 10 list to have some fun. So glad that you could make it back here. And wow, I, I just feel like we learned a lot of things we didn't know before. You guys had some great takes. So that's what it's all about. But why don't you tell people where they can find you online and get a little bit more? So we'll take it away. Okay, you can find me on Twitter at William B west or instagram at william bruce west or i've been trying to hang with the young kids on tiktok so that's at william b west as well or you can check out my website westweekever.com where we look at the week that was in popular culture and decide which thing or person had the west week ever so I kind of took a little bit of a break, but it'll be back in the next like week or so. So yeah, check that out. Awesome. Kevin, how about you? I just want to throw in there for Will. Uh, his TikTok's very enjoyable for Physical Media Monday and New Comic Wednesday for showing off oh, his, his hauls. You. <laughs> you can find me over at at Mask Library across most social medias. And when I want to write about Kazar, I do it at maskedlibrary.com. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And occasionally I'm in a good enough spirits to contribute to the retro network for an article or two. Also, you know, we, I mentioned up top, we have the Thrift Store Horde, which is a series we were doing on YouTube. We're taking a little bit of a break so we can sell off the too many collectibles that we have found at the thrift stores. And then uh, it will come back in some form. But yeah, two entertaining fellas who have a lot to say. So go check out their stuff. Of course, if you want to check out what we're up to, you know where to find us. We are at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. We're on the TikTok as well at Wizards Comics. We're just barely getting into that game with Will. We're young, we're hip, we're with it. And we're also uh, checking out the world of Facebook. So we started posting things over there. People are getting into that Facebook group. So that's something you can check out. Just Wizards Podcast Guide to Comics. Look for it. Uh, also, 
If you're not on Patreon, why are you not on Patreon? You're listening to this, but you want more. We had a conversation before this whole thing got started. There's a lot of details that will be cut out of this final episode if you're hearing it on the main feed. You want the behind the scenes look? You want a scan of the issue? You want an early issue? How about a video version of this conversation? All that fun uh, is available for you on Patreon as well as a lot of exclusive looks at merch uh, before we do haul videos and things like that. And speaking of Patreon, it's time to share shout out those awesome folks who are contributing to the podcast. First up, he's new to the crew. It's Brian Acosta. Brian, welcome. We're glad to have you. Hey, how about Mighty Joe Marcello from the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast? We got Steve King. Stephen King? Are you going to write a book about uh, evil comic book characters that come to life? I don't know. How about Mark Quill? Ooh, Peter Quill's cousin? Mark, you got to tell us. Are you connected to Star-Lord in some way? How about Gabe? Oh, Gabe from Gabe Loves 90s Comics. Our one and only Denim Jedi. Is there another Jedi who enjoys denim? Are they all about the silk? Uh, what about Mitchell Hall? I still think he and Anthony Michael Hall might be related. We want to find out. Lee Markowitz. Hey, Lee, what are you doing over there with that awesome Kyle Rayner avatar? You're getting stylish. How about Stephen Forshaw? Stephen Forshaw? He's going to be on Patreon. Hey, how about our buddies at the Retro Network? Mickey and Jason. Thank you guys for your support as always. And of course... Still coming in at number one, Mark McDonald. Mark my words, you're awesome. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us for this episode. And hey, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.